We are a community educational organization that was started with one goal in mind 13 years ago to bring the best, most interesting speakers in the world to Orange County. We do a variety of programs throughout the year. Our core program is a one-month scholar-in-residence program that you maybe have attended and didn't even know. We bring a scholar to Orange County for a whole month, and they do almost 30 programs throughout the community. They do it at synagogues and at the JCC and so on. So you maybe attend the program and don't know that they're a CSP program. But we also have a summer scholar program. We just had our, our summer scholar in actually early this year in June. We do um, weekend salons. We even do dads and kids camping trips, family camping trips, adult retreats, and so on. You'll hear a little bit about some of our upcoming programs shortly. Our program for tonight is entitled Chapter 2, Revenge of the Storytellers. Raise your hand if you were with us last year at Chapter 1. Okay. Do you get the joke why I call it Chapter 2? It's like a double entendre because, first of all, we were at a restaurant called Chapter 1 last year. And second of all, this is storytelling, so I thought it would be a, an appropriate. I thought it was funny. Okay. Tonight's uh, evening is an evening of adult storytelling, and it's not that kind of adult storytelling. It's a different kind of adult storytelling. We have six master storytellers with us, or I just call them tellers. They don't like that because they think that I'm referring to them as bank employees. Um, and they are, in alphabetical order, Moran Cerf, Brian Finkelstein, Annie Corzin, Carlos Kotkin, Monica Piper, and Carlos, sorry, Carol Schlanger. I'm not going to introduce all of them. I'm going to introduce Brian Finkelstein because he is our master of ceremonies. And then Brian will take the microphone and we'll hear some stories. Is everybody seated? Does everybody have a place? Everybody okay? We made it? Okay. Brian Finkelstein is an Emmy-nominated comedic writer-performer. He's a regular at the Moth as well as the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles. His one-person show, First Day Off in a Long Time, was selected for the HBO U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen and chosen Best in Comedy by Time Out New York. Brian has appeared in a variety of independent films, NPR's Leonard, Leonard Lopez show, NBC's Late Night with Conan O'Brien, TBS's Cut to the Chase, and Comedy Central's Upright Citizens Brigade. That's the introduction I have for Brian. If you were with us last year, you heard all about how he almost got engaged on his first date. Last year, he was here with his other fiance, <laughs> the one that he subsequently married. Married With that, Brian, the microphone is yours, and mazel tov on your marriage and your second engagement. Hey, guys. Let's, keep, let's give a round of applause for Aryan for, for being here and for everybody. Um, this is weird. I feel like there's people uh, all the way on both sides. And this is, the, f I, this is the, the first show I've ever done where my butt is touching something while I'm talking. <laughs> That's not true. It's definitely not the first show where my butt is um, How are you guys? So nice. Um, we have a lot of really great people. It's going to be a good show, yeah? I, I didn't know I was hosting. Uh, Carlos is not here. Carlos Cockin, you guys, if you were here last year, you might remember him. He's, he's amazing. He's going to be here eventually. Um, unless he just decides not to, you never know. Um, or he, the traffic's so bad. So I'm hosting for him. Um, so I guess I will just tell you, uh, just because I already just said it, I, I did get married uh, this year. Um, thank you for applauding the fact that I got to an age where I just gave up. Uh, I, I appreciate it. That's no, not true. I love her. She has wonderful hair. Um, that's what she told me to say when I say that. That, that was the, the agreement. When I, when I asked her if I could make that joke, when I say on stage that I got married and people clap, and I say I just gave up, she said, yeah, just say I have nice hair. So I'm not condescending or patronizing. That's literally her request. I just want you to know that, that I'm not. 
It was ruined a long time ago. A long, long time ago. So I got married. I, I just, I'm, I'm going to tell a story a little bit later, but I feel like I should do something to start. So I'm just going to tell you quickly um, about my, uh, my wedding. I got married this year, and then we... Um, the, the idea, we, we, we started going to therapy before we got married, um, uh, which as, as the night goes on and I host and you, you, you hear me say a few things, you'll understand uh, poor Jean's plight um, to be married to me. But the, this is the reason we first started going to therapy. I'll tell you a few as the night goes on, but this is the first uh, reason. The first night that we um, spent the night together. Is this an adult audience? Is it okay to say that? We've spent the night together before we were married. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> And uh, we were doing that thing that you do when you first are in a relationship. Um, maybe somebody here remembers? I'm not sure. And um, uh, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> and uh, where you like, you tell each other story. Like you both want to go to bed, you're both tired, but you've seen it in movies that you have to do that romantic conversation thing. You know that thing like where you have to be like normal, so you talk. Um, and we had this conversation and she, Jean, my wife is the happiest person who's ever been born ever ever. Um, does, if she wakes up every morning and opens the window and just starts to almost cry about how beautiful, like we live in LA, every day is beautiful and she's still <laughs> amazed, like oh my god, the sun came, like every day, that's her. And I wake up every day and say it's better to never have been born. <laughs> and that's the way we see the world. And so the first time we were in bed and, and we were having this conversation late at night and she said, um, have you ever thought about how you would want to die? How you, and I said, oh yeah, since my whole life. <laughs> And so I told her this. I told her that when I was eight, um, I started thinking about this. And this is the way I imagined to die. Uh, and, and I said, I'm, I'm in a football field um, full of people because I'm narcissistic. And I'm standing on one end and I'm naked. Um, and there's two beautiful models holding me, male or female. I don't care. I appreciate the human form. And um, on the other end of the football field is a Native American uh, with a bow and arrow, a chief. And he takes the arrow and holds it back and shoots it up in the air. And the entire crowd stands up and applauds. And then when the arrow gets halfway in between, uh, I guess it's 100 yards. I don't know much about sports. And uh, so at the 50-yard line, it gets like, you know, the, the peak. And everyone gets very quiet. And it comes down. And right when it gets this close, um, the Native American chief on the other end of the football field goes, we forgive you. And then it hits me in the heart and kills me and I fall and everyone stands up and applauds. And that's my dream about how I would die. So now me and my wife go to therapy um, <laughs> because of that. That's the, that's the start uh, of our therapy, which I will tell you more as the night goes. Um, that's not really my story. That's just me sort of trying to do, so, that, that's how I thought I would warm you guys up. <laughs> By telling you a death story to start off the show. Um, He's a known felon. Ari's uh, wanted in Irvine for uh, traffic violation. Uh, I just thought you should all know. All right. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about uh, each storyteller. I'm going to pull them up here, uh, and your guys are going to go crazy. These are amazing people. I, I've seen every single person here. or I, I haven't seen everyone live, but I've heard everyone here tell a story in some way or another. Um, and I think you're all very uh, extremely lucky because it's some of the best. So one more time before we even start, let's give them a round of applause. For And I'm going to read you their bios before they come up so that you know a little bit about them, okay? So um, our first storyteller is going to be Moran Cerf, um, who uh, you may have heard last year. Um, 
This bio is ridiculous and makes me feel ashamed of my life. Okay. <laughs> Moran Serp is a neuroscientist. That, that should be enough. That should be enough to be like, oh, here's this amazing person. But nope, there's uh, six more sentences. Um, he's a neuroscientist at Caltech and the UCLA and NYU Departments of Neurosurgery. In his research, Dr. Cerf, ladies, um, <laughs> studies how uh, con consciousness works in our brain and how <laughs> it's weird that I tripped over that sentence. Um, that might be something. Um, and how high-level emotions are regulated using direct recording from single neurons in the brains of patients undergoing brain surgery. I watched three hours of TV today. That's what I did. Um, Moran received an MA in uh, the philosophy of science and a BS in physics. In physics. Just because. He was bored. Um, prior to his studies, Moran worked for several years in the Israeli high-tech industry as a hacker, a pilot, and inventor. Please welcome the perfect man, Moran Sir. Every year around October, the Karolinska Institute in, uh, is announcing the winners of the Nobel Prize in many fields. Every day you wake up in the morning and there's one more award being handed. Uh, physics, medicine, literature, of course there's peace in Norway, uh, chemistry, and so on. This is widely known. Everyone uh, kind of wakes up in the morning in the US and listens to the radio and listens to who which scientist won the award this year. And it's a very interesting thing. What's less known is that about a month before the Nobel Prize awards are being handed, they hand the Ig Nobel Awards. <laughs> now, I don't know how many of you, uh, if many of you know what the Ig Nobel is, uh, it shares the N word Nobel, which kind of plays on the idea that it's an award for scientists, but the Ig in the beginning uh, alludes to ignorance. So these are awards given to real scientists who do real work and publish it in peer reviews papers, rightfully, about utterly stupid stuff. <laughs> Give you an example, uh, a few years ago, uh, a group of scientists from MIT won the award for finally testing the five seconds rule. You only rule if food <laughs> drops down and you pick it up right away. Is it actually uh, contaminated or not? They tested it, they took uh, various types of food from soup to chicken, they threw it down to the floor uh, on, in the toilet, in the hallway at MIT on the grass, and uh, turns out it's not true. If, if your food drops down, you should not eat that. This was well tested published and they received the award for that uh, <laughs> study. Uh, a year ago, uh, uh, in, chemistry, uh, so in, in, in neurophysiology, the award went to a neuroscientist, I feel very proud, who studied finally the effects of yawn, you know, that if you yawn, then someone next to you might start yawning, it's kind of contagious. It turns out it's not the case with turtles. So if you, if you, if you yawn in front of a turtle, turtles don't do that. And, and there's more and more, I think that uh, this year, the, the prize in uh, literature went to the uh, Irish police, who handed 365 tickets to a person called uh, Pravdo Yazdi, which uh, uh, is a Polish person who lives in Ireland, and turns out that the word means traffic ticket. <laughs> so his name was translated and they get tickets every day, and so on. <laughs> so you, you get the idea. Well, I'm here to tell you that I was a nominee for the award about 10 years ago. <laughs> and it goes like that. 
at the time, I was not a scientist. I was actually working in a company. And our company was a security company, which is a, a fancy word uh, to say that we were hackers. So our job was to try to break into banks and uh, financial institutes and try to test their security. We called it the penetration testing, which is a pretty uh, sexy word for what we did. And we would find flaws in their security and then come to the company and say, look, we found a way to break into your bank and steal money from your accounts. Why don't you uh, hire us now to actually help us help you secure the bank better? For, so no one bad's going to do that. We, we call that active marketing. So uh, we did that for, for a number of years. And we were pretty good at that. And one week, we did one job that forever changed my uh, way of thinking about life and death. And the job was uh, uh, for the Israeli equivalent of the social security services. So there's a database that they have that has all the records and all information of everyone in Israel. And for every person, there's one line database that says their name, their first name, last name, whether they're married or single, uh, date of birth, uh, occupation, and so and so information about them. And this is the system that every other system in the country feeds off. And that's how they know kind of information about you. So we were asked by the social security services to try to see if you can find flaws in that system, the security, and actually break into the system and see if we can access information about people. And we could. It took us 24 hours to break into the social security service database and be able to change every record there and do whatever we wanted. So this was fantastic. <laughs> we were very happy. And uh, I basically left the office and told one of my teammates, Nathan, told him, why don't you write the report? So the, re the way it works is that you find flaws first, and then one of the team has to write a long, detailed report explaining how this was done so people can you know, secure the system better and so on. So I told him, I'm going home now. I did all the work on breaking in. You write the report. And he said, sure, I'm going to write the report. And then I go home, and I spend the weekend at home. And on the Monday morning, before I go to the office, I went to the bank to get some cash. <laughs> And I go, I see that some of you already figured out where it's going. <laughs> I go to the bank, I go to the teller, and I, I give her my ATM card, and I say, I need to take $200. And she scans my card and says, just a second, sir, there's a problem. And she turns all white. And she goes to the back room, and she calls the manager, and he approaches me and he says, uh, would you step aside with me for a second? I want to talk to you. And I go to the side to talk to the manager, and he says, this is uh, very embarrassing. The system says you're dead. <laughs> and I at first didn't realize what's going on here and he says I, I don't know what to do but we can't give you money because in, uh, the records show that you just died this weekend <laughs> and I say well first of all here's me <laughs> and here's my ID showing that I'm alive and, and first, second you know me Yoni you're my friend like uh, what happened the, this guy was a good friend of mine he spent the weekend with me so he should know that I'm alive he said I don't know but we can't give you money we have to figure out what's going on and I went to the office, and within a few hours, the story uh, unfolded. So what happened was that Nathan, as part of the report, wanted to show kind of a test case, show that we can actually change people's record. So he went to the database of the social security services and chose to change one record from one field in one record. And he chose a record of someone he knows well. And he decided to change one flag there, the flag that says from being dead, zero to being alive. So it reversed from being alive one to being zero. So he declared me dead. And here are the two problems with being dead. <laughs> In case you didn't know so far. Problem number one is unless you're uh, Jesus, Paul McCartney, and Elvis, you don't go back from there. <laughs> and problem number two 
is that because you don't go back from being dead, all the systems in the world that feed from that system never check again. So if you are declared dead, you're dead forever. In fact, the programmers who wrote the code for this database never imagined people are going to go back to life. So they just didn't make this, this, this was an option. There was just no way. So we actually changed my record back to being alive, but it didn't matter. Everyone else already knew me as dead. So now, for all purposes, I was dead. Some good things happen from being dead. <laughs> all your traffic tickets get canceled. <laughs> uh, you can get any record you want in the GREs. There's a lot of good things about being dead. The bad things about being dead, you can imagine a few of them. One of them is that you can't take the GREs. I had a problem with, with that. Every time you stop by a police officer for you know, driving, uh, they check your system and they see that you're dead. They go to a mode which is zombie mode, <laughs> which is a, a different training that they have. And altogether, it's really hard on you and the people around you. My parents started getting bouquets of flowers from all kinds of insurance companies. <laughs> Uh, my girlfriend at the time started applying for uh, benefits of widow, uh, and, and, and things started happening that were amusing but alarming at the same time. And I was enjoying this thing. I was entertained by the idea to some extent. I actually did an interview uh, in the Israeli news uh, which was titled The Life and Death and Life Again of Moran Surf. <laughs> and I was you know, playing uh, jokes on this idea pretty uh, happily, until one day I got a phone call that kind of changed the, my view of this thing. This was a phone call from a person in India, Lal Pradi, from Uttar Pradesh, who actually told me that this situation that I was facing is something that people in India face often and actually is regarded a pretty bad situation. What happens in India is that a lot of people are, are, are very poor and they need money. And one way to get money is to declare some relative of yours as dead and inherit their property. So there's a lot of people in India who just do that. They go and they declare some other relative as dead, they inherit their stuff, and then there's a problem because when you declare dead, even if you're alive, it's really hard to convince the authorities that you're alive. So people go and they try to do that. And this is a real problem in India and apparently in other third world countries where it's really hard to convince people that you're alive if someone declared you dead. And actually this guy, Lal Padi, declared, uh, created an organization, a nonprofit called The Living Zombies, <laughs> where he was trying to get the word out and kind of make people know that you can be alive while being declared dead and that the system doesn't have records for that and that you can actually not deal with that easily and he tried to get some kind of recognition for that. So when he heard that some guy in the Western world is suffering from the same problem, he immediately reached out to me and said, can you join us? So your story is going to be public. And I said, why not? I'm going to be the spokesperson for the living, dead, living zombies <laughs> on the Western world. So I became really uh, happy with doing just that. And everyone around me was not excited, but tolerant, until we had to face a real death in the family. Now in Israel, facing real death is not that surprising. It happens quite often. So up to that moment, everything was okay. But when we faced real death, that's when I had to confront the idea of death and living person first-handed. Our family is a typical uh, uh, Israeli family, which means we broke into pieces. Everyone fight each other, and primarily the fighting are ver uh, on topics which are religion and secularism, and left and right uh, views. So my family is secular and leftist. Everyone else in the family is right-wing and very religious. This, as you can imagine, causes a lot of problems in the family. Particularly, the main problem in the family happened when my uh, younger cousin, Nadav, turned 13. I was 18 at the time, and he had his bar mitzvah. 
He had his bar mitzvah, a very religious one, and my family, my immediate family, which is my dad and my mom and my brother and myself, were asked to come to Jerusalem to attend his bar mitzvah in a very uh, religious area, which is borderline outside of the green line of Israel, so it's a kind of a somewhat settlement. We were asked to go there, and because bar mitzvahs are held on Saturday, we were told that we have to arrive Friday afternoon to Jerusalem, spend the weekend in this settlement, so we can not drive on Saturday and attend the bar mitzvah in the morning. So we were asked to not drive. And my mom, who is uh, the most devout atheist you can imagine, referring to God as your imaginary friend, said absolutely not, and said we're not going to do that, we're not going to go, we're going to drive regularly on Saturday the way we want, we're going to maintain our things. And this quickly created a clash in the family that they said, if you want to drive, don't come. Mama said, we're going to come, we're going to drive. There was like a big thing. And my dad, who was kind of a, uh, you know, trying to solve the problem, suggested the best solution he could think of to fix that. And he said to them, to the other side of the family, sure, no problem. We're going to stay in a hotel on Friday night. We're going to walk to the bar mitzvah, don't, no problem. And to us, he said, we're going to lie. <laughs> the entire family, the four of us, are going to lie. So the idea was that. The idea is we're going to drive on Saturday morning, all four of us shouted bar mitzvah, handle it regularly, but when asked, we're going to have a coherent story about how we spent the night in a hotel nearby. <laughs> Most kids are told by their parents not to lie. Our family rehearsed the lie on the way to Jerusalem. <laughs> my dad says, so he, no, I was 18 at the time, so my dad said, if you are asked what the name of the hotel, what do you say? I say, of course it's the Sheraton Hotel. And says, your brother, my, my five-year-old brother, where, where, where's the Sheraton Hotel? Oh, it's right, I've got to come to this place, this place. Where were your mom last night? My mom was in showering. Like, we had a coherent story for everything if confronted by anyone from our family. We failed. As soon as we arrived, this was a prisoner's dilemma. They separated us. <laughs> they asked my brother a question about me. They asked me a question about my brother. It was like my mom had a Sophie choice. You know, had to choose who, who she goes with and such. Quickly, the story collapsed, and the grown-ups started having an argument in the living room while, while we kids sit in the... All the cousins, there were like 20 cousins, sit in one room, feeling embarrassed that their parents fight, and know that this is it. Like, there's going to be a problem. And I remember I was the oldest son in the family, I remember finding it really uncomfortable for us and talking mostly to the youngest in the cousins, uh, Ruth, she was five years old, and you know, trying to kind of make a session while we all understand that in the other room there's big family crisis happening. And she showed me a picture that she drew of the family recently. And the family at the time had, you know, tons of people, fathers, mothers, cousins, and such, there was 40 people. And she showed me a picture of everyone in the family and we don't appear in the picture. Like the four of us aren't there. And I asked her, I said, Ruth, you know that we're a cousin. How come there's no pictures of the four of us in the family? She says, oh, you're not really part of the family because you don't believe in God. And I said to her, you know, we're still family. If you need kidneys, I'm your best, uh, <laughs> best uh, bet. Uh, and plus, you know, God is one thing. You can be believe or don't believe in God. That's one thing. But, you know, there's a lot of things that you uh, feel close to even though you'd have to believe in them, like unicorns. You don't really see unicorns, but you still, you still feel you still have a lot of unicorn dolls here, and you still love them. You can love me even though we might not agree on this particular topic. And I think that she was kind of confused, and luckily my parents took me away from the room when I uh, was early enough not to explain to her that there is no Tooth Fairy and the Santa Claus. So I was uh, able to leave the room quickly, and this was the end of our family relationship. For five years after this crisis, no one spoke to us and we didn't speak to anyone. So the family collapsed because of this event. Until the months I was dead, when I got a phone call from my cousin. 
and she, I pick up the phone, and it's her, and I'm surprised she calls me. We didn't speak for five years. That's the oldest cousin now, not the youngest one. And she is crying, and she tells me that uh, one of our cousins, Nadav, died in a terror attack. She said he was walking in Jerusalem to the army, where he was at the time, and there was an explosion, and he died. And there was a funeral in two days, and she asks that our family all come to the funeral, even though we didn't speak for many years. And I say, of course we're going to come, and I tell my parents. She decided to call me because the, their, her parents didn't want to call my parents, so it's our job to make it happen. I tell my parents, and we all show up to the funeral, not telling anyone. And there were thousands of people in this funeral. It was a kind of a very political event, so we, and we felt not part of the event, so we stood in the you know, 50th row, just like uh, strangers. And Ruth, the youngest, actually recognized me and came to me and said, come on, come stand with us. And she, the youngest, picked me and my family by, her, by our hands and brought us to the kind of front row where all the other members of the family were. I think that this moment was a moment that we both realized, also we all realized, all the cousins, that it's moving to us now, it's our generation now. The, the parents can fight, but we're the ones who are going to deal with things alone. And we went after the funeral to the Shiva at my cousin's uh, house in Jerusalem, where Ruth, who was now 10 years old, handed me a picture that she drew of the entire family, the one I saw before, with four more circles that she added of ours, and a little unicorn <laughs> horn coming out of my head, and a little writing that she added that says, you should always try to be yourself, unless you can be a unicorn, in which case, you should always try to be a unicorn. <laughs> Thank you. Come on, one more time for Maran Surf. That's amazing. I told you, he lives the most incredible life. He's dead and he's still living better than I am. Um, okay, I'm going to uh, quickly tell you my story um, now. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I was just talking a little bit about getting married this year, and I uh, was talking a little briefly last year, and I mentioned it quickly about uh, a date I went on last year. So I, I'll preface this story by saying I've dated a lot of the wrong women over the years. Um, uh, not wrong that there, there's anything wrong with them, but that I did the things that you're not supposed to do. I dated uh, women who I worked with. Um, I dated women who were my roommates. Um, I, I'm not proud of it, but during a very bad period of my life, I dated a woman who was married. Um, I dated a woman named Ashley, who uh, only dates men, uh, who dates women, who dates other women. <laughs> it makes sense if you think about it. Um, but, and I did get a little bitter, and I, this is the story of that, because I, I don't think you earned the bitter badge um, until you fly to India to watch the girl you love uh, marry her cousin in an arranged Muslim wedding. <laughs> so... When I uh, first met um, Samina, uh, I was in my early 20s. I just moved back to New York from California, where I was living in San Diego for a while. And I worked at a bank. And I met Samina, and she was beautiful, and she had the most beautiful eyes, and she smiled. And I, I was very young and cynical and had, had a rough period for a little while there. And I saw her, and she was, I worked at a bank, uh, and she worked at the bank, and she was beautiful, and I instantly fell in love. Um, and so... I asked her, because I'm very original uh, and romantic and like to think outside the box, I invited her to uh, a movie. Um, <laughs> now, to give you an idea how long ago this is, we went to go see uh, Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts, um, which that movie, the title alone, should have been some sort of like, ding. Um, 
And after the movie, she says, hey, um, I just want to be careful and just say, like, what are your intentions? I said, well, I don't have intentions. I just moved back. You know, this is what I said. I, I, I just moved back to New York. I don't know anyone here. Um, and I wanted to go to a movie. What I was thinking was, I love you. Um, and she goes, well, okay, as long as your intentions are just to go to a movie, because I want you to know that, uh, that um, I'm Muslim. Uh, I'm from India uh, via Iran. And um, since birth, I've been arranged to marry my cousin, so I don't want to mislead you. And I said, you know, I was just got out of college uh, in that culture of college where you're taught to think everybody else's culture is better than yours. So I was like, cool. Um, that sounds like a fascinating story. So for four years, we were best friends. Uh, me and Samina, and we did everything together. Um, went to the movies, talked late night on the phone, uh, went for part. We, we didn't have any sort of physical relationship uh, at all. Um, so in my 20s, from 22 to 26, virgin. Um, we had, there was one day where we went to this park uh, in Bayside, uh, Queens, where we were living, and, uh, and we held hands. Like that's, that's that, I remember it like it was yesterday, we held hands, and it was very, extre it was extremely intimate. And that was it. That was our physical relationship for four years. Um, I should also mention at the time um, that I was slowly starting to become a Muslim, um, too, because I thought that was my way to win her over. I started wearing a shavakami, um, which my father loved. Um, I fasted for Ramadan, uh, which my grandmother could not understand. Um, and this is, this is the way I thought I was going to win her heart. So finally, it's time for her to get married. Um, she leaves New York to go to India on December, or it was like November something, and I was going to leave a few weeks later. So I left New York uh, on December 24th, um, uh, JFK, and I landed in India on December 26th. Um, because of the time change, there was no December 25th that year. So just quickly, uh, I am uh, predominantly, I guess I'm half half Jewish, uh, uh, and I know everyone here is going to, not the right side, my father's Jewish, my mother's not Jewish, my mother's Protestant, but I was raised both, uh, both, both parents, we did both services, we both did all the holidays. I definitely identify as being Jewish, clearly, uh, it should be apparent by now. Um, and so, but here I was, a half Christian who missed Christmas, um, a half Jew at a Muslim wedding in a predominantly Hindu country. <laughs> I was a little lost, uh, to put it lightly. So we go to, the, we go to the, um, the Taj Mahal, we see the Taj Mahal, we meet her family, they're all very nice, but they're all very skeptical about what this white uh, guy with the last name Finkelstein is doing in the small town of Aligarh, which is an extremely Muslim town in northern India. And she gets married um, in this like compound where they live, in like two parts. And the men get married on one side and the women get married on the other. And the men, it's very festive, there's big pots with chicken and peas, and the food's very, there's no alcohol because they're Muslim, but it was okay. And then the women get married on the other side, and it's very serene and beautiful, and they have those beautiful saris and the Han Hanna uh, Mandy stuff, which is very spiritual there and very trendy here. And, um, <laughs> but men, they don't, they don't go back and forth. The men and the women don't share the experience, except for me, because I'm nobody to these people. So I am like the only person who's going to the women's side and then to like to the men's side. I feel like I'm a reporter, you know, like with an all-axe press badge to my own destruction. Um, so I'm going back and forth and then they get married, they sign these papers and halfway through it, like, or towards the end of it, I sit down like in between and I'm like, what am I, why would I, what am I, why would you go to a girl you love's wedding? How come nobody stopped me? Where was my family? Where are my friends? And uh, I sit down on the ground, and I remember there was a beautiful full moon, and there was a chicken in the dirt. 
Jinky escaped from one of the big pots. Um, and I started to laugh, and then I started to cry, and then I threw up. After the wedding, uh, Samina says, hey, why don't you extend your stay a little bit and come back to Delhi with me and my husband slash cousin Thadik, uh, and just stay with us for a little while. And I was like, well, I've gone this far. Sure, let's, let's keep going a little bit further. So we go to Delhi. Um, he goes off to work, and one day while he's at work, she tells me, and this is where I didn't see any of this coming. Um, she tells me that she thinks she's pregnant. And I'm like, that's great, you just got married. That's great, that's great, crying. Uh, and she goes, no, it's not my husband slash cousin's baby. There's another guy. Excuse me? <laughs> well, there was this guy in New York. I'm like, what? Because we had told, like I told her I was a virgin. I mean, I'm American, it's okay if I lied, but she's not supposed to, They're, you know what I mean? She's supposed to be above it. And so she tells me the story about how this guy um, in New York, she told the same story that I had gotten. And uh, one night he came over her house and knocked on her window. And while her parents were sleeping, he came inside and they spent the night together. Roughly around the same time that I was holding her hand in the park, thinking this was this beautiful, intimate moment. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm literally, I thought, like, I'm, in, I'm not in a love triangle, I'm, I'm in a love square. <laughs> and apparently, my corner is the only one that doesn't have any sex. Everybody else seems to be doing fine, except Finkelstein. And, uh, <laughs> and then friendship mode kicked in, and I said, well, you know what, you're living a lie. This culture and this stuff is wrong and you, you should go with your heart and you love this guy. And then as I'm telling her that, I'm like, um, I'm living a lie, I love her. And so I started to kiss her. Yeah, that part's not true. I just wanted to say that once out loud. <laughs> sort of see how it felt to say it in front of her. I never kissed her. But I did say, you're living a lie. Um, you have to not stay married, you have to leave your, your fiance, you have to like just end this. This has to stop. This this ridi ridiculous like stuff has to stop, and you have to do what you think is best. Your sleep, like if you were just had feelings, but you slept with, like it's over. It's over. Your marriage is over. like you have to. You're not. It's going to be miserable. And she's like, I don't know. Um, and she goes, I have to find out if I'm pregnant first. And I'm like, okay. And she goes, but you need to get me a pregnant because we are in this part of India where um, women can't buy pregnancy tests. They sell them, but women can't buy them. That's the law. <laughs> Which now my college. Other cultures wrong. Other some cultures are wrong, and so I go out onto the streets of India, and like as I get to the door, she goes, "Also, just I, if you're going out there, just if you can pick up some milk." <laughs> Literally, I'm like, "Okay," and so I go into the streets of India, and I, I, I I'm looking for a pregnancy test, and I, I I don't I find this like bodega. I don't I don't know what it is, but there's like a what I'll just call a guru sitting on the ground. He was sm smoking a hookah pipe and it was a pharmacy that had that like international and I went inside and I bought a pregnancy test and I was like, okay, now I gotta get milk. Should be easy. Got a pregnancy test. There's cows everywhere. There's gotta be milk. <laughs> so I'm walking through the streets of India and it's like cow, cow, motorcycle, cow. And, um, but I can't find milk. Finally, I go to a bodega. I buy a bag of unhomogenized milk. I go back. She goes in to take the pregnancy test. She comes out. She while well, it's cooking or whatever it does, I don't, she tells me the story of, of this guy and I'm like, you know, again, you have, to, you have to tell your husband. She goes in there. She's not pregnant. I was like, that's, doesn't matter. You have to tell him. He comes home from work. We sit down at the table and she tells him. She tells him that she's in love with somebody else. And this guy, um, who was really nice, he was literally reading uh, Atlas Shrugged while I was there, uh, was a nice guy, uh, all of a sudden became a monster. 
uh, and got very angry. And I don't think he was going to be violent, but he, he picked up a knife. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, but he, I don't think he was going to. And I just was like, this is enough. And I left. I grabbed my backpack and I was like, I'm done. And I went to the streets of India um, and I held a rickshaw. Well, it's not called a rickshaw because it's India, but it, it's a rickshaw. <laughs> and uh, I, I took it to the airport and I went to Nepal. Um, I'm out of shape, clearly. I smoked a lot back then. Um, and uh, I went up the Himalayas. Couldn't go to Everest, clearly, but I went up pretty high. And I sat down um, uh, on top of the world and, uh, and literally on top of the world and fell out of love. Uh, um, now, normally in this story, I would say forever, because that's the way I've seen it. I would always say forever. Um, it's weird, because that's, I usually say I would fall out of love forever, and then I end the story. And that's how the story ends. But now I can't say that anymore, because I got married this year. So um, the hell with Samina. Uh, and I married Jean. And that's my story about going to India. I didn't think of the ending. I got, to, I got emotional there, because I didn't want to sell out my wife. I fell out of love forever, and then I settled when I turned 44 and I married Jean. That's it. <laughs> guys, are you ready for your next storyteller? Yes. That's not, that's not exciting. Are you guys ready? The, the, this, these people that are coming up here are amazing, and you should get very excited, because you're about to be blown away, I think. Um, all right, I'm going to read uh, the bio here for Carol Schlanger. Um, okay, so she tells her stories uh, in venues all over L.A. Um, and is excited uh, for her memoir, Far Out. Um, Love uh, and Life on Wilderness Commune uh, is soon to be published. Um, she's a former writer um, and Humanita Humanitas, oh, wow, nominee. Jeez, everybody's, these are amazing. A published playwright, I'm, I'm reading them for the first time. Her words have uh, had highly successful concert readings and productions in LA and New York. Um, she is an Obie nominee in her portrayal of the American housewife in, at the Joseph Papp Theater uh, and has appeared in both film and television. And her one-woman play, Mouth to Mouth, received three LA Drama Critics Awards. Um, uh, she's a working comic actress. And this Thursday, July 30th, uh, you can see her on the awesome TV show, uh, um, Rizzoli and Isles. So watch that. Awesome. Very, give a big round of applause for Carl Schlanger. Come on. Sitting on this and uh, telling you, I don't know, it's just very funny to me. Uh, I am 67 years old. Hey, 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 hey. And I can kick, and I can kick, and I can lie on this thing. I can't tell you my story completely by heart because, you know, I have this brain that's 67 years old. But I, ha even though I, I very recently had. Uh, uh, hip replacement surgery, and um, but you know I have very little gray in my hair. Can you see that? And uh, I have no polyps on my colon, <laughs> which is great. But I have n no grandchildren. I mean I'm almost perfect for my age, and I have absolutely no grandchildren. And you might ask yourself why, and that's because my adult children have no children. I mean, that's why. Um, they're not married. I mean, they're not even in a committed relationship. And I, I can't figure out what my gene pool did to deserve this. Uh, the Schlangers, my family, have always been perfect. I mean, I mean just, just look at me, please. I mean, a world 
without Schlangers is inconceivable. Is it, I, I wonder really if it's my fault that until now I have been left out of the evolutionary loop. Well, I don't, I really, no, I don't think so. Uh, Charles Darwin, in his theory of natural selection, says that those who are adapted to an environment have an advantage over those who aren't so well adapted. Well, excuse me, Mr. HMS Beagle, who had no children because he spent all his time in the Galapagos looking at lizards. My children had a great environment. They were very happy growing up in Culver City. They were up on the hill, they ran around, they had fresh air and sunshine and trees. Okay, like it wasn't Beverly Hills or Brentwood, but they loved it. What's a really big community here that's really wealthy? Laguna Beach. Yeah, well, it wasn't in Laguna Beach either. <laughs> and, um, so, and every summer, our family returned to rural Oregon and became hippies again. My two children were doing Native American sweat lodges before they were old enough to sweat. <laughs> My son's very first words were in Lakota Sioux, uh, which means bless all my relations. And uh, remembering his first sentence, it's, it still brings tears to my eyes. Mommy, what's in the pipe? <laughs> Indica, darling. Indica. Mommy doesn't do tobacco anymore. It's habit forming. Grandchildren. I, I just, I don't know. I'm telling you this. I just really even don't know why, but I just see them everywhere. I mean, the babies, those, those, those little feet, you know, that you can stick in your mouth, and, and those little hands that grab your fingers, and their eyes, oh my God, their eyes just have heaven in them, and their tushies. Oh, I want to kiss them. I want to hug them. I want, I, I want to pat them. I want to squeeze them. And I want to put that soft, silky skin right next to my cheek. Oh, I am tushy deprived. <laughs> Everything reminds me of a tushy. Eggplants. <laughs> Eggplants remind me of a tushy. And tomatoes. I mourn the day that my children lost their tushies and grew butts. <laughs> All my friends have grandchildren, and they tell me that having a grandchild is a rebirth. It's a gift given to you in the last part of your life that opens you up to a new kind of love that just pours out of you, and I just wish they would shut the hell up. <laughs> I'm, I mean, Maybe I am to blame. Uh, my children, that my children haven't procreated, I mean, to be honest with you, they drove me a little crazy. I wasn't a relaxed, yoga-going mother. No, I, was a stay, I wasn't a stay-at-home mom. I was a, I'm busy, don't bother me, I have to work if you want to eat, mom. I worried too much, I was intrusive, I was undisciplined, and frankly, my boundaries were a tad fuzzy. <laughs> 
Now my 39-year-old son is living in a trailer in our driveway, <laughs> and he has an Irish Catholic girlfriend named Bernadette and plays the drums for Afro-Cuban dance classes. <laughs> I spent a fortune on his schools, and now I get a bongo in the backyard with a Christian martyr. <laughs> Let go, let God, let go, let God, let go. You're right, you're right, yeah, let go, let God. And my brilliant 30-something uh, daughter is getting her uh, architecture's master's downtown in L.A. at SciArc. And she works about 18, 19 hours a day, and she believes so strongly in leaving a light carbon footprint that she won't get a car, and she just bikes everywhere. And she hasn't dated anybody, and I really don't know how long, and the only thing that she actually massages with her fingers is kale. <laughs> it, 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 it breaks my heart. So I, I, did, I did what I had to do. I joined a matchmaking website for Jewish mothers who want their Jewish children to marry Jewish other children, and then they get more Jewish children. And it's called J-Mom. <laughs> no, it's very real. Have you ever heard of it at all before this? Oh, well, look it up if you have any problems with your children. And um, what happens is you send them pictures and a profile, and then they send you pictures and a profile back, and that gets the ball rolling. And so uh, I think it was just yesterday. Uh, here's what I got from them. Oh, this gets me. Benjamin Katz attended NYU Stern School of Business and lives in his own condo on the 12th floor of the Marina City Club. He loves travel and surfing. His parents have strong family values and are both successful malpractice lawyers. <laughs> oh, maybe my daughter will like Benjamin Katz. Let go, let God, let go, let go. I, I, I click the send button, and this very morning, my daughter, Skybird, calls to tell me that she is meeting Benjamin Katz in Westwood for a cup of coffee. Skybird, Schlanger, Katz. But, 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 but honey, I, I'm saying to her on the phone, this is me on the phone in case you can't get that. Uh, why should you and Ben just go out for coffee? I mean, you have to travel all that way, and, and you can't do that on a bicycle. You're, you're going to have to take a taxi or, or that new train that's downtown that keeps getting off the rails. Um, I mean, he should at least take you out for dinner, sweetheart, just to let him take you out for dinner. Oh, darling, you sound very hostile. No, no, D don't hang up. Hello? Hello? I let go, let go. I, I, oh, 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 I'm so sorry, sweetheart. Oh, please forgive me. It is just an old, very bad habit from long ago. A cup of coffee in Westwood sounds perfect. Yeah, absolutely perfect. A afterwards, you might take in a movie. Oh, have a wonderful time. Well, I love you, too. Grandchildren come when you are old and wise, and through them you know that your feet and your brain and maybe even your dreams will evolve into the future. They are the real free love. And who knows, I mean, someday I might be sitting in the park with all the other bubbies, and I'll say to them, have you met my granddaughter yet? Sacagawea. <laughs> Thank you.
Come on, one more time for Carol Slanger. Come on. Wow. Um, definitely watch uh, Tuesday. Sorry, I said the date wrong. It was Tuesday, July 30th. Um, and she'll be on Rizzoli and Isles, which is a great show, and she's amazing, so you should watch it. You can all put that in your cell phones. I'll give you two minutes to put that in your cell phones if you want to remember to watch it. Um, what? It's not HBO. It's uh, TN TNT. Yeah, TNT. Basic cable. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. If, I don't know. Guys, are we having fun? Ladies and gentlemen, I say guys. It's misogynistic. I know. Um, really, are we having fun? Yes. Is everybody warm? Is it a little warm? Yes. A few people have told me it's warm. I don't know if that can be... If there's no... Oh, sorry. I just like to talk about things that are uncomfortable and not have any sort of solution. Um, which is the second reason me and my wife go to therapy. She does not like it when I talk about everything. Um, all right, we ready for our next storyteller? Yeah. You excited? All right, uh, as am I. Um, our next one, uh, our next storyteller is Monica Piper. She's an Emmy, eh, Emmy. I'm a writer. Uh, she's an Emmy award-winning comedy writer and stand-up comic. She has written for sitcoms Roseanne, Mad About You, and Veronica's Closet. I just want to say, you know, you do shows in LA and you hear people who are on TV. These, the, the, usually it's like shows you've never heard of or terrible shows. Let, let me say that again. Roseanne, Mad About You, and Veronica, those are like amazing shows. Um, like three, three of the best shows ever. Um, she was a head writer uh, on the number one children's animated series, Rugrats, also a show that did pretty good. Um, she started, really good. Um, she started on her own Showtime Network special, No Monica, Just You, and was nominated for an American Comedy Awards as one of the top five female comedians in the country. Tonight, she'll be reading a piece from her one-woman show, oh boy, um, Farmished, Farklumped, and... Uh, far, I, I'm sorry. I told you. My mom is Irish, sorry. I'm sorry. I felt you guys hate me as soon as I said that. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, here's Monica Piper with uh, Schmattitude. I can say that. Schmattitude. Oh, thank you. I think they just changed the lighting. They lit you, and I'm in the dark. Very good. <laughs> Don't let the amount of pages fool you. I, lo I lost my glasses, so this is really big font, okay? So, hello. Hello. <laughs> Kitty. <clears throat> Not long ago, uh, recently I had a yard sale which uh, quite unexpectedly became this astounding revelation. I realized I spent 200 bucks on a blouse no one would buy for a quarter. <laughs> I thought that was funny, and uh, I'm a comedian, so I wrote it down. Eight years ago, I would have called my father. I would have. If he laughed at a new joke, I knew it was funny. He's gone eight years, and I still want to pick up that phone. You know the feeling, right? A priest, a minister, and a rabbi <laughs> were interviewed by a journalist who asked, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? And the priest said that in the person of Jesus Christ, I brought virtue to God's faithful. And the minister replied that I was a simple shepherd leading his flock. 
And, and Rabbi, she asked, what do you hope they say about you as they gaze down at your coffin? He said, that's easy. Oh my God, he's moving! <laughs> My father told me that joke when I was six. That is the truth. And I sort of got it. I knew on some level that Jews were funny. And on another level, I knew that Jews were funny even facing the dark stuff. And my father was a really funny guy. Truly, I grew up with this comedy master who could make me laugh with a look, a funny voice, a wince, a take. My destiny was taking shape very early. As I get older, my, my memories don't really have a specific chronology anymore. They're just snippets, they're just moments that stick with me. I remember in the months before my son's bar mitzvah, my father, I said, to Dad, this is insane. Every time I turn around, it's a thousand bucks. He said, don't turn around. <laughs> when I was a little girl and I was gobbling up my dinner, he'd say, hey kid, even a train stops once in a while. <laughs> Growing up in our apartment in the Bronx, I relished our Sundays watching sports together in the den. Uh, Giants, Yankees, Knicks, Rangers, it didn't matter. Because we'd laugh and we'd eat and we'd always make fun of the commercials. It was just fine, a, a, a fun game that we played together to find the funny in an unfunny thing. And I remember there was this, um, IBM had this campaign, this thinking man's campaign. And they showed a guy taking a shower who suddenly gets an idea. And this booming voiceover asks, what if? And my father shouts at the TV, what if you leave me alone and let me take my shower? <laughs> and I add, what if I call the cops? I don't know you and you're in my bathroom. <laughs> And we laughed, and he said, kid, you're funny. 25 years later, I was on a comedy club stage spoofing a men's commercial for a cologne. You know, it smells like a man. <laughs> they didn't even tell you which man. <laughs> Could be Slappy, the bait shop guy. <laughs> And in the audience, laughing the loudest and quelling was my father. He said, kid, making people laugh is a gift. It helps them take their mind off their troubles. I can, I can hear my mother's voice. Roy, you know the fine golds are coming over. Get moving. Feingold Schmeingolds, it's the bottom of the ninth. He loved putting the schmuh <laughs> in front of a word because 
I came to understand that it's the Jewish way of dismissing something unpleasant, right? The shmuh. I can still hear him at Passover. And then Moses said, Pharaoh Shmero. <laughs> <laughs> or when my little heart was broken, Daddy, Mickey Weintraub doesn't want to be my boyfriend anymore. Mickey Schmicky, you're 10, you'll get over it. <laughs> Just snippets, moments. I remember in my late teens coming home from college, my father introduced me to some new neighbors in the building. He said with a straight face, I'd like you to meet Mr. Fox, Mr. and Mrs. Katz, and Mrs. Wolf. <laughs> And then he leaned in and said, I don't know if this is an apartment building or an episode of Wild Kingdom. <laughs> How could I not become a comedian? I was in 10th grade when I told my first real joke and people laughed. Our English teacher, Mr. Cooper, um, passed out papers and then announced that today we were having a, a little pop quizzy. And I looked at him and said, if these are your quizzies, I'd hate to see your testes. <laughs> Everyone laughed! Except Mr. Cooper, who actually wrote the joke on a disciplinary report. He wrote it out, the joke and sent me to the principal with the thing, right? And I'll never forget this, as long as I live, she's sitting there. <laughs> and the funny part is, and this is the truth, I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I thought I was doing a clever play on words, on quiz and test. I did not know what testes were. <laughs> I, I don't work dirty. <laughs> As an adult and working stand-up, we talk on the phone a few times a week, and I, I treasured his funny takes on my life. These are all really true. Um, and I remember once I called him and said, Dad, I have this new boyfriend, Dave. We're on the same show. We're on the road, and we're on the same show. And my father said, you're on the same show. Yeah. Aren't you the headliner? <laughs> yeah. You're dating an opening act? <laughs> I said, yeah. Well, at least you know he'll be home early. <laughs> swear to God. My parents were married almost 50 years. When my mother died, it shook us hard while sitting Shiva in the same apartment in the Bronx, a pleasant neighbor, Gladys, brought a brisket and said, Roy, if there is anything I can do, <laughs> anything at all, darling, don't hesitate to call. That night after the people had gone and the brisket and cold cuts and rugula were put away 
it was just the two of us. My mother's artistic and whimsical touches were everywhere. We missed, we ached. I honestly had never seen my father look so small and broken in my entire life. So my instincts kind of kicked in and I said, Dad, how about next time Gladys asks if there's anything she can do, we give her some funny stuff to do. <laughs> he thought about it for a minute. He smiled, he said, all right, let's play. You be Gladys. Roy. <laughs> if there is anything I can do. Actually, Gladys, there is. I just sold my car to this lovely Chinese gentleman who doesn't speak English. Could you please take him to the DMV and help him transfer the ownership? <laughs> wow. Actually, Gladys, there, there's something else you can do. On the first Tuesday of the month, I like to rotate my tires. Could you? Wow. And we laughed in the face of the dark stuff and knew we'd get through it. My son is 21 and a funny, funny man. By the time he was born, my father had moved to Florida and had married Barbara, a wonderful woman who adored him. We'd visit four times a year, and oh, how my father loved his boy chick, and how my Jakey loved his papa. They'd disappear into his den, and I'd smile to the sound of my child's belly laughs. Some grandfathers take their grandsons fishing. Mine taught his to do spit takes. <laughs> Jake told his first joke when he was five. We're avid hockey fans. We've been avid hockey fans for a long time, and we love the Kings. Jake said when he was five, Mommy, I think I made a joke. I said, well, what is it? He said, knock, knock. Who's there? Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky who? Wayne Gretzky who? What, are you crazy? <laughs> Good joke, right? I was so impressed. Perfect. We called, Jake said, could we call Papa and tell him my joke? So we called Papa. My father laughed out loud and said, kid, you're funny. My son had 13 years of visits with my father. When Jake was 16, I came home from a storytelling event in which a single mother told a poignant piece about packing her only child's bag for college. I told Jake how moved I was by this story and how I needed to prepare for when it was my turn. He put his arm around me and said, don't worry, Mom, I'm not getting into college. <laughs> Oh, God, how I long to pick up that phone. 
Recently, I called into Jake's room where he was engrossed in a Yankees game. Come on, time to get ready for dinner. From behind his door came two seemingly simple words. Dinner schminner. <laughs> and so it goes. Wow, one more time for Monica Piper. Jeez, please. That was beautiful, right? Um, I think I'm going to hit an all-time low tomorrow when I steal her son's joke, the Wayne Gretzky joke. I almost lost it over there. I didn't think I was going to come up. It's so funny to me. Are you crazy? Come on. Um, all right, you guys ready for your next storyteller? Yes. Wow, very good. Um, great. Okay, our next one is uh, Carlos Cockin. Um, he's a 10-time Moth Story Slam winner um, who has been regularly featured on KCRW's Unfictional, the popular storytelling uh, podcast Risk, and NPR's The Moth Radio Hour. Um, his comic memoir of romantic misadventures, Please, Please God, Let It Be Herpes, A Heartfelt Quest for Love and Companionship. I, I have to say I, I've read that book, uh, and it's, it's pretty amazing. You should get it. Uh, it was recently published by Penguin Books. Um, please welcome Carlos Cockin. Uh, I'm not reading about herpes right now. I don't have herpes, and that's enough about herpes. Right. <clears throat> I'm going to read a story, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, called, this is called For Lucy. When I was in the sixth grade, my parents and I moved to a rustic part of San Diego County known as Lakeside. I had a lot of trouble making friends. So much so that one morning, when my mother dropped me off at my dreadful new school, she got out of the car with me, much to my surprise and dismay, took me by the hand, led me to a pudgy, red-headed boy who was sitting by himself, and proceeded to make introductions by saying, Hello, this is Carlos. I'm Carlos's mommy. Carlos doesn't have any friends. Would you be his friend? <laughs> I'm not sure whether my mother was genuinely trying to help me forge new friendships or perhaps as a life lesson trying to help me get my ass kicked. <laughs> whatever the case, whatever the case, with a slight nod, the pudgy redhead agreed to be my friend, and for the whole rest of that school year, we never exchanged a single word. <laughs> Since my parents were not able to help me find new human friends, <clears throat> they did the next best thing. They bought me five pet chickens. Initially, I was amused by the idea of having pet chickens, but similar to former President George W. Bush's experience with Russian leader Vladimir Putin, I looked into the chickens' eyes and saw their souls. <laughs> chickens are extraordinary beings. They make excellent role models. They're curious, good-natured, enterprising, tenacious. I could go on and on. There is one thing, however, they are most certainly not. Chickens are not chicken. Chickens are brawlers. They're tougher, they're tougher than hell's angels. The first time a chicken meets another chicken, and this applies to all chickens, not just the ones who fight professionally, <laughs> they say hello by instantly beating each other to a pulp until one of them is on the brink of death and the victor nearly collapses from being physically drained. 
you definitely don't want to get on a chicken's bad side. And I never did. I got along famously with all five of my chickens. <clears throat> None of them had names. Our bond transcended names. We knew who we were. <laughs> there was the stoic red chicken, the genteel yellow chicken, the cantankerous black chicken, the agile auburn chicken, and last, but certainly not least, the mighty gray chicken. The gray chicken was number one in the pecking order, ready to take on all comers. Besides being the alpha hen, she was also my best friend. Some days I would come home from school and tell the gray chicken my secrets. I'd say, hey chicken, I have a crush on Jenny Gokenbach. She has a boyfriend, so it's a forbidden love. The gray chicken would stare at me wide-eyed and go like this. <laughs> she totally understood. <laughs> I would often take the gray chicken on long walks around our expansive backyard. She would follow me wherever I went. I would lift the backyard rocks and the gray chicken would quickly gobble up whatever innocent pincher bugs and roly-polies were placidly living out their lives underneath. On one occasion, I lifted a rock and exposed a large scorpion. Before I could stop her, the gray chicken swooped in and devoured the scorpion. I panicked, expecting her to cough up blood or explode. She didn't. Instead, she calmly waited for me to lift another rock so she could scarf down the next scorpion as if it were a potato chip. Because like all chickens, she was a badass. <laughs> Sometimes I would put the gray chicken on my shoulder and pretend I was a pirate. <clears throat> she would gladly play along. I'll always remember the day I took her into the house perched on my shoulder. My mother vehemently disapproved, instructing me to take the chicken outside. I told her I couldn't. We were pirates on a ship at sea. Outside was the ocean. My mother would have none of it. She wanted the chicken out now because the gray chicken was supposedly giving her looks. <laughs> I didn't know what my mother meant until the gray chicken suddenly took flight, flying off of my shoulder and landing directly on top of my mother's head. As the gray chicken dug its talons deeper into my mother's scalp while it comfortably preened its feathers, my mother began to softly cry, asking for help. I laughed and laughed and laughed. Those were good times. <laughs> Through elementary to junior high to high school, I remained close to my feathered friends. They were my original posse. You may wonder, why did my parents get me chickens and not a dog? The answer is, we had a dog. He was a constantly amped, wiry Welsh terrier about the size of a douchebag. <clears throat> His name was Max. He was an indoor dog. We kept him from the chickens. In general, I loved dogs, but Max I tolerated. He had a daily habit of maniacally humping my leg and inflicting severe headbutts, sometimes simultaneously. His other talents included trying to eat rocks, using the top of my father's desk as a personal restroom, <laughs> and unfortunately, getting out of the house, sneaking into the chicken coop, and viciously attacking the gray chicken. She fought back courageously, brave warrior that she was, 
driving Max out of the coop before he could hurt the others. However, the damage was done. Max didn't kill her, but he might as well have. All of her feathers had been ripped out. She stood in the center of the coop, dazed and vulnerable, in need of immediate medical attention. My father and I put her in a box and rushed her to the vet, who promptly told us, we don't do chickens. <laughs> he suggested we take her downtown to the exotic bird hospital. In the lobby of the San Diego Exotic Bird Hospital, people waited with their gold macaws, crested cockatoos, blue mountain lorikeets. Then there was me and my dad with our bald chicken. She appeared ready to go into the pot and be made into soup. Everyone gave us looks, some mocking, some disdainful. When the bird doctor finally saw us, I thrust the gray chicken toward him and said, a predator attacked, help us. He held back a smile and I could clearly see he was thinking I should be wearing a safety helmet. <laughs> the bird doctor promised he would do what he could. He asked what the chicken's name was. I was going to explain we didn't have names, we didn't need names. But my father immediately replied, Lucy. <laughs> After nearly seven years of friendship with the gray chicken, I discovered her name was apparently Lucy. As the doctor took her away, I implored Lucy to fight, to hold on, to not go into the light. Before we arrived home, the bird doctor called. My mother was there, she answered. The bird doctor informed my mother Lucy had been given salve for her wounds and that Lucy's condition was stable. My mother thanked the good doctor and then asked him who Lucy was. <laughs> It seemed Lucy's name was a family secret, <laughs> held closely and exclusively by my father. A few days later, Lucy succumbed to her wounds, shuffling off to chicken heaven. I felt sad, but not devastated. Though she met a violent end, Lucy was one of the luckiest chickens who ever lived. I have a, a special request. The next time you're compelled to call someone a chicken because they have a fear of roller coasters or commitment or success, don't call them a chicken. Call them a little sissy pants. <laughs> Do this for all the chickens across the globe. Do it for the chickens I grew up with. Do it for Lucy. Thank you. Come on, one more time for Carlos. I guess I'm a sissy pants. I'm scared of roller coasters, commitment, and success. I, I have to say, I, are you guys having a good night so far? It's pretty good, right? It's, it's pretty amazing, right? Pretty great. Um, I'm also having a great night, except now all I can think about is the wonderful chicken dinner I had um, across the way earlier. It was so delicious. I feel bad. <laughs> Not that bad. It was really good. Um, all right, we have one more storyteller for you. Excited? Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Annie uh, Corazon uh, was the reoccurring Doris Klompus on Seinfeld. Um, that's pretty amazing. That's it. Maybe you've heard of that show. Um, she played John Turturro's mother in Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, Jason Alexander's sister in Neil Simon's uh, The Prisoner of Second Avenue, and has performed her solo show, Yenta Unplugged, and the Yenta Cometh on three continents. She's the author of uh, 
bargain junkie uh, living the good life on the cheap, which I believe she's going to be selling here after the show, and it's on the cheap. Um, I don't know if that's true. It could be very expensive. I have no idea how much I talked to her. Uh, she's also written numerous essays for NPR's Morning Edition, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and soon will be a regular humor column uh, in the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, little murmurs. Big round of applause for Annie Corzon. Come on. Before I start, I just have to tell you that the part on Rizzoli and Isles that Carol is doing, I also auditioned for, and I am not happy about this. <laughs> When I became a mother, I failed every step of the way. And my failures led to a severe postpartum depression that landed me in various loony bins for the first three months of my son's life. This was not how I had envisioned becoming a parent. I figured I would be just like all those women in the movies, which is where I learned everything about life. In films, the mother and child always bond immediately. She gazes at him with tears of joy and says, well, hello there, you beautiful boy. Well, <clears throat> I also gazed upon my son with tears. <laughs> tears of profound and hopeless terror. Who is this creature? And how the hell am I supposed to keep him alive? <laughs> I'm a single child from a small family. I had never seen or held a newborn baby before. But I had bought into all the 60s feminist dogmas about childbirth. First and foremost, it has to be natural. natural. No drugs, no episiotomy, no C-sections, no induced labor. If you do any of those things, your child will have lower intelligence, learning disabilities, seizures, and it will be your fault because poor little you just couldn't handle the most excruciating pain that Satan ever invented. Now, I am going to tell you right here and right now the true miracle of childbirth. It is a miracle that anyone who's been through it is willing to do it again. You may applaud. Well, the labor went on for too long, and I couldn't push him out, so I was put under for forceps delivery. I failed at natural childbirth and had probably created a special needs kid. <laughs> My husband, Benny, is Danish and he was working in Denmark at the time, so I gave birth in a foreign country. Big mistake. After the birth, we moved up to my father-in-law's weekend house. <clears throat> Because again, from the movies, I had fantasized about strolling in beautiful nature with my laughing baby. Well, the house was cramped and uncomfortable, the weather outside was dark and windy and rainy, and there was no strolling possible because I was too overwhelmed to figure out how to dress myself in the morning. Plus, I could not stop crying. Now. I am going to give you some advice. If you are planning on having a nervous breakdown, 
do not have it in Denmark. <laughs> That's because the Danes, like the British, consider strong emotions to be bad manners. <laughs> Danish women are capable, stoic, and independent. I, on the other hand, was frightened, fragile, and exhausted. And my worst failure was I couldn't breastfeed. I didn't like doing it. I was sure I was doing it wrong, so we switched to formula. And again, in our culture, breastfeeding is a sacred, health-giving ritual. Feeding your baby formula is child abuse. I had now probably given my special needs son an incurable autoimmune disease. I am the worst mother who ever lived. They find a Jewish shrink who says to me, what are all these foolish tears about? Go home, light the Shabbos candle, start preparing for Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> I've never done any of that stuff. Why is he talking to me like I'm a character in Fiddler? And then he repeats what everyone's been saying. Motherhood is instinctive. Nature will show you what to do. Well, when nature showed me what to do, I must have slept through the class. <laughs> I keep crying, and Tevya the Shrink <laughs> decides that I need to be hospitalized. The psych ward is in a gloomy old Dickensian building in Copenhagen. None of the other patients talk to me, partly because of the language barrier, partly because Danes do not speak to strangers. The other inmates, that's what they are, all bathe themselves every day. They rinse out their underwear in the sink and make their beds neatly and change the water in their flower vases while I, lie there, unwashed, in my rumpled sheets, and suck on Marlboros while the flowers on my table wither and die from neglect. Not only was I a failure at being a mother, I was a failure at being a patient in an insane asylum. <laughs> I wasn't improving. So we flew back home to New York and the psychiatric unit at Mount Sinai Hospital. My roommate was a novelist whose husband was a famous uh, theater critic. Another patient was a gay guy who was obsessed with Judy Garland movies. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> My kind of people. <laughs> In group therapy, we were encouraged to share whatever was on our minds. So I raised my hand and I asked if anyone knew the most painless and efficient way to kill yourself. <laughs> and apparently, the other patients had also considered this subject. <laughs> and they offered a lot of really cool suggestions. <laughs> this was the most fun I had had in months until the uptight shrink put an end to the discussion. She claimed that my topic was counter-therapeutic. <laughs> What's her problem? <laughs> but somehow, by some miracle, I started to improve. 
mostly because the raging hormonal changes caused by the pregnancy had begun to subside and I was starting to feel like myself again. You know, we like to think that we're in control of our emotions, but let's face it, it's usually, it's usually general biochemistry who's in charge. One night, some old friends drop by, two gay guys who entertain me with hilarious stories of their messy lives, and the friendship and the laughter suddenly made me think that, well, maybe life is worth living. The next day, Benny brought our son, Jonathan, for a visit. I picked him up and he smiled at me. And just like in the movies, I said, well, hello there, you beautiful boy. It was time to go home. I had a domestic helper for two weeks and finally got the care and guidance I should have had in the beginning. I never really needed the hospitalization or the drugs or the therapy. All I really needed was a servant. <laughs> I never told Jonathan about any of this, but when he was 18, my demented mother-in-law accidentally spilled the beans. I tearfully started to explain that it was a hormonal imbalance. It wasn't because I didn't love him, yada, 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 and he goes, Okay, okay, why are you making such a big fuss over this? I've always known you're a nutcake. <laughs> What's for dinner? So I started out with absolutely no talent for motherhood. And in spite of all those birthing rules that I broke, and in spite of all those nursing rules that I broke, Jonathan turned into a smart, and healthy and perfect man. Everyone always says to me, you have such a great kid, and the two of you have such a close relationship. How did you do that? <laughs> and I laugh to myself, little do they know. Come on, one more time for Annie. Did you all have fun? Did you all have a good night? Yeah. All right, let's give all the storytellers a round of applause again. Monica and Carol and Ann and Carlos and Moran. Uh, thank you all very much and have a wonderful night.